Oh yeah, what's up everybody? Welcome, welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, July 23rd. Super excited to have all of you guys here, man. It's, uh, I'm excited for today, man. It's been, a, it's been a long week and I'm happy to hang out with some friends. Uh, hopefully you guys got a chance to tune into the podcast episode I released earlier today with Dr. John Sviokla. He is co-author of The Self-Made Billionaire Effect. Believe me when I tell you, like this is a book that I've read twice, listened to on Audible like three times. It is one of my absolute favorite books. So it was a great honor to be able to speak to uh, Dr. Sviokla. Hopefully you guys get a chance to check that out. Also, hopefully you guys get a chance to tune into the uh, Data Talk podcast. I was uh, fortunate enough to sit down with my friend Mike Delgado and chat with him on his podcast. And also yesterday, I got a chance to sit down with Ken G to, uh, to be on the Ken's Nearest Neighbors podcast. Ken, what's going on, man? A um, lot of other awesome stuff happening. This weekend is the DSGO virtual conference where I will be emceeing uh, all of Saturday. It's going to be a long day, but it's going to be amazing. It's going to be awesome. Uh, hopefully you guys get a chance to tune into that. And then on Sunday, I will be, what will I be doing on Sunday? SQL from the ground up. So I'll be uh, teaching you guys SQL syntax from the absolute basics and progressively just adding more and more stuff on top of that, getting more and more difficult stuff. Uh, shout out to everybody in the room. What's up? Abe, Kenji, Vinfashista, Russell, Eric, Eden, Spencer, Eden. This might be your first time here. Happy to see you here. Uh, super excited to have all of you guys here, man. Welcome to uh, welcome to happy hour time, man. Cheers to all of you guys. Hopefully you can join me for a beer. If not, it's all good. Um, so I got a question, man. I want to talk about experience real quick. So like there's all these like memes going around talking about, oh, if you need, if you need, ex you know, if you want to get a job, you got to get experience, but how do I get experience if you don't give me the job? You know, when they talk about experience on data science job postings, like do they really mean actual work experience? Like, can you get data science experience without having to work for a company, right? Like, can you get data science experience by doing projects, by doing stuff on your own? Because, you know, in my mind, I feel like work is work, right? If you're able to uh, rigorously recreate the environment that you would as a professional data scientist, it, it shouldn't matter. But I'm wondering uh, what you guys think. Eric, what about you? That's a really good question. I know we hear about it <clears throat> talk about it all the time. I think you can get work experience or you can get experience without it necessarily being like on, being on the job experience. But I, I think that people kind of throw that around saying, ah, you don't need a job to get real data science experience. You can just do a project and they are right, but it is way harder than that. And part of the reason it's way harder than that is because I do not have a realistic database in the other room for me to just go grab and like do a magic project on, nor do I have stakeholders asking me for stuff outside of work on a regular basis, you know? And so like, there are so many pieces of real work environment that you can't like make up unless you have like a really demanding data-driven dog who just really wants something from you. Right. And so, so I do believe that you can, but like, I think the key something like that's been really helpful for me to be like doing that is to like really like take the time, like feel like I'm envisioning something that I want to accomplish 
And then just be willing to sit there, put in the time, Google it, stack overflow forever, come to office hours and ask questions, you know, and like make it something that you're participating in and sharing your journey in the whole time. And then, you know, if it doesn't turn out to be a crazy world changing project, you know, it's really not a big deal because the experience that you got going through it is, is value. Okay. So if I'm, if I'm hearing that right, there's like a, there's a bit of difference when you're um, on the actual job because you're mentioning there's these external pressures that you have from people who are that you're held accountable to, to for getting the job done. And that's an aspect that you cannot recreate if you were working on your own in your own type of project environment. So yeah, both both that those those external expectations. So if you can externalize and somehow externalize your your progress of your project, whether it's with a mentor or just an accountability buddy or LinkedIn or something like that. That's awesome. And then the other thing is the resources. Be realistic about the resources that are available to you and the business questions might be available to you or seek them out if you are looking for something something bigger. But this is, those are your two things I think that are important to keep in mind that are different, but you can kind of hack or whatever if you if you really want to. Awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, Kenji, we're going to go to you next. And just for everybody just joining us, whether you're in the Zoom room or on LinkedIn or any of the other streaming platforms, uh, we're starting the discussion off about this this idea of experience, right? Because everybody is outraged because these entry-level jobs require so much experience, years of experience. And my question was, can you recreate experience um, you know, through independent work, through portfolio projects, do you actually have to work for a company to get quote unquote experience? Ken, let's hear from you. So uh, thank you for that, Eric. I, I mostly agree with you. I would argue that you can, though, get almost everything um, that Eric described, even the the data, even the, the client feedback from individual projects. It just takes a little extra effort. But that is one incredible way to differentiate yourself as well. Something that I'm seeing increasingly common as I've gotten more involved with these communities is that let's say my YouTube community, my 66 days of data community, there's a lot of data that's passed around in there. And if someone were to come in and help me and and were to collect that data or organize that data and make it more useful to the community, help creating value there, to me, that has all of the elements or or like essentially 99% of the elements that you'd be looking for in what someone does in a real world. You have a product, you're adding value to something, and there's clear stakeholders who you're creating this value for. And I think that that's what a lot of people miss in their project work. And that's why they get this feeling that, they, that their projects aren't enough, that their projects aren't real enough, is because they're missing that stakeholder component. Um, but if you are very careful and you think a little bit outside the box, you can integrate those things in. But it does mean you have to go outside of this vacuum. And I think that that's what what Eric is talking about a little bit. Correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's hard to do these by yourself. I I would agree that if I'm just in my room in this closed circuit, um, it's really difficult for me to create these stakeholders unless it's myself, right? And it's really difficult to collect this data unless it's my own data. And usually that, that data is like, not very, not very robust. So I would say that, you know, really think about who the focus of your projects are, like who the, again, the stakeholder is. And that is what will will open the eyes of these employers. That will be how I would personally classify really good real world experience that potentially is just as good as any uh, on the job experience, because you've had to control that whole process. You've had to manage the stakeholders directly. Um, whereas sometimes you're given the, uh, 
the business problem more directly from the stakeholders in your work. Whereas this one, you're ha you have to elicit what the problem is and what you're trying to solve. So um, very, again, difficult, uh, requires a lot of work, requires a lot of thinking, maybe even more work than a regular job, but you can absolutely showcase that. And any employer that, that I've talked to would absolutely value that experience, uh, especially if you have those things. And thank you very much, man. I appreciate that, man. Some good advice. Hopefully um, you guys are listening in on whatever streaming platform you are on. And if you got questions or comments, let us know. I'll go ahead and share that with the uh, with the group. Uh, Russell, let's hear from you. Then after Russell, let's hear from, from my friend Riva. Riva, it's like, I don't know what time it is in Melbourne, Australia, but uh, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, and then after Riva, let's hear from Mikiko on. And uh, the topic we're talking about is experience. When they talk about X number of years of experience for entry-level jobs, two or three years, do they really mean work experience or no, can personal project type of experience count. Russell, let's hear from you. Evening, Patrick. Evening. Um, yeah, I agree with, uh, with Ken and Eric. Definitely um, practicing on any data can help. But to try and um, come up with some kind of a, a metaphor for it, I'd say it's like practicing to do the Tour de France um, cycle race on a, uh, one of those peloton things in your back room. You know, you can, you can load the, the journey in, you can do the miles uh, but until you're actually in the race you're not going to know exactly what it's like uh, you're not going to have the uh, the extra variances to deal with like weather and other riders uh, in the race so I'd, I'd say you can probably do at least 75 percent if not up to kind of 90 percent of exercising your data um, analytics and data science muscles with data that comes from anywhere uh, especially like Ken was saying, you know, from from communities that are already using data, if you can get something from them, if you don't have access to that, you know, uh, scrape some data from a website somewhere, go to um, go, go to GitHub and download some some even standardized sets of data, you know, the Irish data set, stuff like that, just to practice some basic stuff is, is better than sitting and waiting for a job to do anything, certainly. Um, but yeah, until you're actually in at the coal face, uh, at the at the work front and and seeing the challenges that can manifest randomly nothing really can prepare you for that but absolutely practice and uh, it gives you a lot of experience thank you very much russell great great tips as well reva let's hear from you you got some great comments here in the in the chat um so i definitely want to hear what you have to say let's let's unlock that from the text and then after that let's go to mikiko yeah, I mean, I agree with everybody who said so far and definitely, I mean, it sounds, I mean, I just don't want to throw it out on saying that corporate experience is the only experience, but definitely, like, let's say from a data engineering point of view, because that's where I come from, it's one part, the, the projects definitely let you know, understand what are the different tools and how you can play around with the tools. So you definitely have that easy catch up whenever you're actually working on it. So definitely by doing actually projects, you will be able to catch up very quickly. But the biggest, but the biggest problem always I see is actually the communications with the business people, and just getting them approval. And sometimes trust also comes into the fact that like they believing that you can do the job, or they believe whatever you are delivering does the job. Those would be the paths you won't experience, and though they will be pretty much least resistance paths for you in the project. But that would be the most messy part for you out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wonder like can we recreate that type of uh, you know this stakeholder this this business kind of interaction by by you know taking what we've done with our project and making a presentation from it putting it up on youtube uh and then posting it on you know linkedin and maybe sharing it with a couple people and trying to get 
um, trying to get some some the feedback and, and interaction of it in in that sense. Uh, let's go to let's go to Mikiko first, and then we'll come back to you, Ken. Uh, Mikiko, are you still here? Yes, you are. You hey, sorry, I was uh, vain enough that I had to re-download my Zoom background pack. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so here's my here's my hot takes. Um, as someone who, frankly, is very undegreed in my career. So my BA is in anthropology. I tell employers it's in economics because technically it is also in, in economics, but the majority of my study was anthropology, right? Um, so it's not a lie. It's not a lie. Um, but, um, you know, like I've had to essentially get jobs through like some combination of uh, informal learning because if I'm going to be honest, when I graduated UCC, I had a 2.4 GPA, like re real, for reals, guys. Um, so first off, there is no grad school on this planet that would take me, not even U of A or ASU, not to like, not to shit on Arizona, but, um, literally like when I talked to a bunch of the grad schools, they, I was like, could I, I was like, could I get a letter of reference from like the CTO of Autodesk? It's a big company international. They're like, yeah, no, no, your grades. Oh my God. Did, they're like, did you, did you do a startup? Did you, did you start a unicorn startup? So informal education, um, self-taught projects. Um, and also through like just really kind of clarifying what my value was in the pitch. Um, so from my perspective, like, and the, the hot take is not that. The hot take is um, look at who's kind of giving that advice. So first off, if you are like in a position that is very similar to what I was, um, if you kind of let the years of experience sort of stop you from going after that job, you're basically not going to grow and you're not going to succeed in your career, period, period. So I would say, like, if you're one of those people who is, like, being really intimidated by the requirements, um, I would say, like, really understand, like, are the requirements there because it's, like, functionally necessary? Um, or are the requirements there because the hiring managers don't know what they're looking for and they're casting, like, a really wide net? And then, like, don't take it personally. So there's that bit. And I would say, like, for the people who are giving the advice, we're, like, they have to really pin it on years of experience. I kind of feel like another hot take. If you, if basically you're... If your like criteria for basically letting get or for someone going into a job is your years of experience, I really question whether or not you actually understand what you're looking for in a candidate. Because if you know what you're looking for in a candidate, then you should be able to say like, here are like the, like so here here are the projects that we want this candidate to come in on. Or even if you don't have a set list of projects, say like this is the kind of impact we would like to see from candidates. This is the kind of like pre-impact. Or these are the kinds of like impacts that we would have liked to you had like to have seen you do at other companies, um, and and these are the and this is the tech stack that we use. Like so, for example, some teams they really do have like a very specific tech stack. Like if you're using GCP or AWS, you can't just go as a candidate necessarily and say like, okay, I want to pitch this other one, right? Like you do have to kind of meld to that tech stack. But like for example, when I worked at like when I got the job as a machine learning engineer at Mailchimp, they were like, look, like as long as you you've have experience like one of the category. So they're like, we don't care if it's AWS GCP. We do care that you worked with like a like a cloud provider because there are things that are very like specific, like security and credentials and encryption, and all that, right? And cost, <laughs> cost, right? Um, but like to me, that was a very mature way of looking at the interview process. And also the fact that like I met everyone on the team, I talked to them, they asked me questions about my projects, some of which were like in a startup, some of them were personal, um, but they really asked about like, what was the decision making? And to me, that was like a very, very mature process that to be honest, I had not seen at other companies. And part of it could be kind of the nature of the role, which is like they wanted someone who was just very gritty and adaptable. But I think part of it too, is that like, 
for whatever reason, like we have this thing of like, let's, let's buy in to what's the hype as opposed to like functionally, let's get down to like, what's the nuts and bolts of what's, what's really needed. So, yeah. So honestly, like if you're the person who's like intimidated by these requirements, it's like, look, at the end of the day, like, you know, you gotta, you gotta bring that bread home. You gotta bring that dough home. You gotta grow your career. They ain't paying your rent. <laughs> you know, they ain't paying your mortgage. Like they ain't doing none of that. So you just got, you, you got to go for it. So, yeah. 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 To, to quote Ben Taylor, your paycheck ain't free. Uh, shout out to Joe Reese in the building. Looks like he's on a, looks like he's on an M1 right now. Are you? Yeah, What's up? Are you on your uh, new Apple M1 machine? No, no. I'm on my desktop. I have a Mac mini as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on my, it's got a, if you guys are wondering why the image is so crystal clear, you can see how fucking old I am now. It's uh, because of this new iMac here. Uh, Ken, let's hear from you. Then after that, let's hear from Vin. Can't believe we haven't heard from Vin on this topic yet. And then we're going to start getting into some of the questions. I see some questions coming in on um, on LinkedIn here. But then if anybody here in the chat has questions, or if anybody wants to comment on this topic, man, let you know. Just just put your hand up, and I'll get you right in the queue. And um, if you have questions, go ahead, and put them in the chat, and we'll we'll add you up to the queue. Ken, go for it. Well, first, I'm going to need a cold shower after after all those hot takes. Uh, so <laughs> I'll I'll do that after after the show, but. You know, something that I, I believe is really important is that if you're creative enough as a candidate, again, I think you can get around almost all of these things. We talked about how difficult it is to uh, emphasize some of the communication and, and perhaps more of the business skills or showing that you can work with a team. Uh, but I've seen some pretty incredible projects that have completely circumvented that. So the first one uh, is a guy, Christian Bordeaux. And he has, uh, he's huge on Clubhouse. He does a lot of uh, posting there. And he went from a boot camp with essentially no experience to landing, to, to getting offers from like an absurd number of companies. And what he did is he framed all of his projects like they were consulting projects and like they had a very clear client in mind. And when you do that, maybe it doesn't get all the way there. But you do get to a certain point where it's like, okay, like this is the business problem that we're approaching with this data set. Um, an example would be, I, I heard this from another person. Uh, they took the Titanic data set, very basic data set. Almost everyone would think that was pretty boring. But he analyzed it like he was an insurance company looking to sell insurance to ships in the future. And to me, that's taking such a stupid canned example that everyone uses and making it fascinating and giving it a ton of context. Someone that can do that, to me, thinking outside the box like that, suggests that they'd be able to do that in, in the workspace as well. Um, I would also ask, you know, kind of a broader question to the group is that is contract work, for example, prerequisite experience to this? If I've done two years of that, um, I look at some projects, if they're targeted to, work, to a community or something along those lines, as absolutely no different than doing a contract role, just not getting paid for it. You know, you're doing it out of your own passion and your own interest. And, you know, again, I am curious as to how that would look in um, in this job space compared to previous, like more pure work as a data scientist, as a full time position. So I think those are a couple of things that would help a lot of people is say, hey, like, how can I use my creativity? How can I showcase that and and use that to illustrate the, exactly the, the things that these people are looking for in uh, in this company. And I think, uh, you know, Makiko did an incredible job of explaining that from the other side of like, hey, what are they looking? But as people who are interested, as candidates who want to get into these roles, there's so much that you can do 
if you're not afraid to be a little bit different and if you're not uh, afraid to kind of think about, put yourself in, in the employer shoes for what they're looking for. Any uh, resources to, to kind of get in that consultant type of mindset? I mean, a couple I have off, off the top of my head, there's a, a case in point. That's, that's a pretty good book. And um, another one would be uh, Fred, Fred Pelleter's book, uh, How to Be Strategic. But do you have any other like resources to how to kind of think like a consultant? Um. I, I, I did do a podcast episode with Christian. I mean, he talks about the projects and how he framed those things. Not the best resource probably, but it was really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if if there, to be honest, there aren't that many case studies on this. I, I, I have only met two or three people who have done this today and they've had great success with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that also might be why they are having such such strong success with it because other people aren't framing their projects or problems like this. So um, if I find anything, I'll definitely be sure to share it on LinkedIn or in these communities. Uh, that's something I definitely want to celebrate because uh, I mean, that to me is a case study of what you should be doing if you're very, very serious about landing one of these positions. Thanks, Ken. Let's hear from uh, let's hear from Vin on this. And then if you guys have questions, I've got Eric added to the queue, but before we get to Eric, we'll look at these questions from coming in from LinkedIn. And if you guys have questions, uh, let me know right there in the chat. I will add you to the queue. Uh, but Vin, uh, let's hear from you. Go for it. Uh, first off, this thing I say all the time about job requirements is it, when you're writing job requirements, please, employers that are watching, if you're writing job requirements for a data science job, please figure out whether that requirement actually has any sort of relationship to performance. Because, and Makiko said this a little bit, and I think everyone's kind of touched on this, but really make it factual, figure it out. Is that requirement going to contribute somehow to employee outcomes, to performance on the job, to anything? Can you link it to that? And I go through any company that I work with, I'll go through their job descriptions, not just in data science, but across the board, typically on their technical job descriptions and just say, look, does this correlate at all with outcomes? And you'll find things like years of experience. It's it's all over the place. When you say three years of experience with a programming language, it's even worse. And so there are all of these different types of job requirements and line items that they don't matter. So hiring managers, for the most part, are kind of slaves to process where there is somebody in HR, somebody in recruiting who's taken over the job description writing. And so when you look at any job description, take it with a grain of salt. And if you can reach out to the hiring manager and talk to them and say, look, I I know what you're asking for and I am that person, you're going to be way more successful in landing an interview if you can just bypass this whole job description, uh, I don't know, train wreck. But as far as getting experience, how do you get experience off the job? You just do stuff. And you can do stuff in a hundred different ways. You can do stuff on your own, doing your own projects. Just curiosity. You know, you can do stuff, solve your own problems. You can solve problems around the house. I mean, really, data science is so broadly applicable when it comes to toy type projects. You know, you can get ridiculous and still it's almost funnier when you do something that is truly ridiculous, but you're rigorous about how you've learned along the way, what mistakes you made. I mean, Ars Technica right now is doing a, um, they're trying to use machine learning to guess which, uh, which title for a particular post is going to be most successful. And I kid you not, this person has made every mistake you could possibly make along the way, but 
the way it's written up and the people that this person's the author is talking to, and you can hear the lessons learned and everything, it's making it a great post series. And if this person was going for a job in data science, you would read this and go, yeah, you know, this person over the course of probably four, five, six weeks has learned a lot. And this would be somebody who's got experience. So really it's just do stuff. And even if you don't do stuff well, do stuff better than you did stuff last week and you're showcasing your ability to learn and get better. And so really don't pigeonhole yourself into one way of getting expertise or getting experience and don't look at job descriptions like they're the end all be all because they typically aren't. Can you uh, link to that, that post you're talking about? Um, that'd be great to, to share. With yeah. You let me go see if I can find it. I, I read yeah. this, this series and it was, it was a, it really an, a lesson in how not to do a data science project, but also at the same time, how to realize you've messed up and then start finding smart people and fix it. So let me find, let me see if I can find it. Awesome. Thank you. Shout out to Ben Taylor in the house. What's up, Ben Taylor? What's up, Greg Okio? Good to see all you guys here. Let's go ahead and let's uh, let's move on from this topic. It's been an awesome topic to start with. Uh, maybe we can come back and revisit it, um, it you know, later on in the show if we got time. Uh, but there's some questions coming in from people here on LinkedIn, um, kind of standard questions. Uh, but uh, somebody's asking about the perspective of an international student. This is for Sagar Reina. And he's asking, if I get a master's degree from a reputed university in data science, can you please let me know all the challenges that are coming on applying for jobs in the same domain? Uh, ben, let's let's hear from you on this one. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, the, que the question I've heard from hiring managers is there's still a gap, right? And the gap is between the types of data sets and things we run into in the real world. And they're they're messy. They're not Kaggle-like. There's all sorts of problems. And, that, and I, I really like what Vin was talking about earlier. Like, the more you can find your passion projects, you're going to run, you're going to stub your toe, right? You're going to run into some issues and you do some web scripting. Like, things are going to come up. They're just chaotic. I'm working on a project right now where I'm using... GoPros as webcams. And I'm super excited because I'm able to stream HDR10. So I've got like my 16-bit video data streaming in, but like you run into issues. So you, you just want people that can run into issues and sometimes coming out of school, that is a concern. So uh, as long as they're aware of the gap, figure out how to close it as soon as you can. Those are the concerns on the hiring manager side. Let's hear from uh, Mikiko. It's not Mikiko left. So, um, Greg, uh, talk to I'm us about here. This. Oh, okay. I'm just sweaty <laughs> and gross from boxing, so I didn't hey. want to subject people to it. Sorry. You're you're you're, you're fine. It's it's uh, it's kind of confusing just seeing the cute little dog looking at me. But the question here is, uh, uh, Sagar is asking about if he was to get a, a master's degree from a reputed university in data science. What are some of the challenges? He wants to know all the challenges that are going to come when applying for a job in the same domain. It's really funny because just five minutes ago, I told everyone about how I had a 2.4 GPA and basically yeah. was not able to get into any master's programs. So yeah, yeah, it's gotta be tough having extra degrees. Um, yeah, I was talking, I was talking to this about with, with Ken. Yes, I didn't share my actual GPA, <laughs> but I was talking about how much of a fuck up I was during my first undergrad. Uh, and like, I, I literally scraped out like 2.2. Yeah, I think- um, From, from in, Cal State too. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> it was funny with crazy rich Asians when they had that uh, CSU Fullerton line. I was like, oh, <laughs> that, right. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I was like, to that CSU was totally. Fullerton. Yeah, I know. I know. It's it's great. Like, but um, I can just speak to like one or two challenges. I think that basically uh, anyone would have graduating um, because, well, so, okay. So in general, like I think the two gaps uh, candidates face when they go into the market and to be honest, it just really depends on the role you're going into, right? So if you're going to like, uh, if you're into like business analytics or more of the 
if you're going into like the business analytics side, right, I feel like the key stakeholder um, management is something that definitely, for example, talking to product managers, talking to business people, that's something that a lot of candidates really don't have. Because even when you've maybe even if you've taken like a case study class, like in under in like your undergrad business program or whatever, it, they tend to be very, very like sanitized examples. And th- at least in my experience of like working on like strategic finance and marketing and revenue operations with C staff, a lot of times um, I don't want to say they seem like prim- prima donnas because that's not really what it is. But they have a very specific lens and they have very specific metrics and problems they're trying to solve in their business. And uh, sometimes that can just get a little bit overwhelming for candidates. And so when you see a case study in like an interview, you're looking at, you're like, oh my God, what's going on? Why are they, why is this so hard? Um, But a lot of times actually the case studies I found, they tend to be fairly um, nice compared to like what you'll actually face in the job. So I think that's the the gap in those kinds of roles. In um, the engineering side, to be honest, like it's always a little bit of a challenge. I think it's just being adaptable and just assuming the best of everyone seems to be the gap. Um, yeah. Um, but in terms of like, if you have a degree, something that I've observed, like people talking about internally, not necessarily in my current job, but in other jobs where I've been on the hiring committee is a deep question of whether or not the candidate has like, can they basically do the work that they need to um, in like under, let's say three to four months, can they get to break even? So um yeah, once again, like, I don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like to be more degreed. Um, I guess I'll never know. Uh, <laughs> but in general, it's always the like, can you, can you, can you, do you have experience that you can even transfer to work on the kinds of problems that they need to work on? And like, how long is it going to take you? So, uh, Ken, let's hear from you. Okay. So, some, coming from someone who is overly degreed and it hasn't necessarily paid off for him. Um, there's actually one thing that we kind of glossed over, which is the international component of this. And I think it's really important to highlight. So I talked to a friend, Eugene Yan, and he came from Singapore and got a job in the US. And what he didn't realize going in is how important it is to pay attention to the specific, uh, the, the feasibility of getting visas, the feasibility of getting sponsorships, because that is actually going to be one of the biggest um, uh, drawbacks or, or one of the biggest obstacles for landing a job, particularly in the United States. I mean, this varies by country, but if this person is looking to work in the U.S., that is something that it, it pays incredible dividends to pay attention to. So research this. Part of it, uh, part, part of this battle is educating these companies on your specific scenario. So Eugene, when he was applying, apparently for Singapore, it's a lot easier to get a H-1B visa than from a lot of other companies in, I mean, other uh, countries in Asia. And he had to let these companies know upfront that it was going to be relatively easy for them to hire him, right? And he put that even at the top of his resume, which I think is really important is that part of your job as an interviewee or as as a person being interviewed is to educate the employer about how easy it is for you to be hired and to work for them and the value you can create for them. And as an international student, that's particularly important. Uh, another just quick thing I want to point out is that the a lot of people think when they get an advanced degree, you just have a job at the end of the degree waiting for you. If I study, if I get my good grades, then out of this, I, I'll have the job. I don't have to do anything. I would argue that the moment you set foot in school, you should be thinking about what things are going to be most impactful for you to land that role. So that's either interviewing, learning about companies, doing projects. And I find that it's very powerful to leverage economies of scope in your studies. 
So if you have to do a project for class, make it something that you can pitch to employers or even analyze your own job data as, as one of these projects. These are these kind of like meta things that overlap, which means you're technically doing less work on the studying and the application front because there is so much overlap between those things. So I would just reinforce that, hey, this going to school is not the end. You wanna do on your classes, frankly, in, in a master's program, your grades aren't gonna be that important. They're gonna look and see if you have a master's degree or not. Um, and again, I can go down this whole road of are master's degrees even important? Are they relevant? Um, you know, some of us have done exceedingly well without master's degrees. And some of us have, have seen the benefit of those perhaps for our specific situation or that ability to make a transition. So uh, I would leave with those two points of understand your situation as an international student and get to work day one for looking for a job and figuring out what levers to pull that'll move you the furthest. And thank you so much for that, man. Uh, so I hope you're getting some great insight from that. Uh, Sagar, let's go to Joe Reese. Before we go to Joe Reese, shout out to Tom Ives. Tom, man. Tom Ives. Uh, what's up, man? It's been, I uh, hope, hope. Not sure what this, this is like a gang sign. <laughs> um, so. Hope the book's writing so well. Uh, but yeah, go for it, Joe. Yeah, I actually just had this conversation with some students of mine yesterday. I teach um, in data science at grad school. So um, I think very applicable. And I think it echoes Ken, uh, Ken's point. Um, if you're an international student, especially like start building your network now, don't do not wait because you have a very finite amount of time to get a job before you have to leave. Um, what I see a lot of people do is they wait till the last second and they start applying. And it's like, that's exactly the wrong time. I think it, it might be 90 days you have for your visa here. Um, if you don't find work, uh, especially in the time of COVID, when um, a lot of countries you might be from are locked down, I would say try and stay here right now if you can. Um, it's not as pleasant in other places. Unfortunately, we had students who had to leave back to you know India and, and, and China and so forth. And like I have no idea what happened to them, but they would they would have uh, landed jobs. I think if they had just been more proactive at the beginning and trying to build a network, especially going out and meeting people um, and just being proactive about the career. Right? Because the assumption is just because I'm in school, I don't have to do anything. Um, I, you know, I get my degree, people will be like, you know, waiting for me with, you know, in a limo trying to get me a job and stuff. It's not, not how it works at all. Um, and I have to have this real talk with, with students all the time. I mean, a lot of my lecture, I, you know, I saved the, the last part for career advice for exactly this reason. Because I know, you know, you aren't here just to hear me blab about how to be an awesome data scientist or an analyst, right? Like, you probably want to get a job. And so it's always, you know, we always reserve time and the number one th thing I tell people is it's, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Um, all you all have basically the same skills, same baseline. It's only going to get you so far, right? And it, and everyone else in the world, information is very accessible these days. It's easy to become a data scientist. Fortunately, unfortunately, it, it, so the baseline is, I would say it's um, it's universal, right? So what's how are you going to stand out otherwise? So be proactive, especially if you are international, like you, you can't afford to wait, especially right now. So... Some excellent tips there, Joe. Thank you so much. Uh, Mark, you had a really good related question here. Um, let's uh, let's have you unlock that question. And, and if you have any like uh, anything to say on this topic, definitely go for it as well. Uh, definitely. I, it's more so a question because I've had many colleagues where they're extremely talented. And then like, I guess there's like some visa lottery or they're stuck to a certain job because their visa is tied to an employer. And so I was just curious, like, how do such individuals, because I can't really speak for them or provide any detailed advice, but like think about their career progression when they have these kind of constraints um, going about it. 
love to hear from Greg, but I don't think he's here anymore. Uh, any comments on, on that topic, um, on, on Mark's question there? Because that's a really good question. I've got no answers for that. Vin, what do you think? How international students can stand out that much more when they have that additional ask on the visa sponsorship? Was that the question? Um, my, my question is more so like you've already landed a job, but for me, like when I'm thinking about career growth, I'm like, all right, I can go to another location really easily because they have this certain skill set or, um, you know, I can think very future focused, but I've noticed people who are international who are my colleagues, they're very concerned about making sure their visa's filed. You know, sometimes they're, they're on the, the opposite end of the lottery and they, they have to go back home. Um, or they're like, I want to go to this new place, but I have my visa with this employer. So I'm stuck here. Yeah, I I think the thing to think about is um, that's tricky because if you get conservative like that, where you're thinking about the the oh no rather than leaning into it, you're going you're gonna have a harder time standing out. I, I think for people that really fight for standing out and doing innovation, taking some risks, and adding real value, there's always options. So like because one of one of the last candidates we gave an offer to visa sponsorship was on the table to bring them in uh, based on the quality of the candidate, and I think. Just because you have that sponsorship with a current employer doesn't mean another employer wouldn't be thrilled to bring you over, but it, you have to stand out. So if so, I, I think that's an interesting point, because if you're guarded and concerned, you're not going to be taking the big risks. You're not going to be trying to take these big bets on innovative projects that could fail for that risk. So look who's running the big tech companies right now. Say that. Look who's, say running, that. Look who's running the biggest tech companies in the world right now. A yeah. lot of them were, were, were foreigners coming here. And that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, it, something I was thinking about, Joe, is this, there's a lot to be said for having, like, it, it's unfair for some people that it's not unfair. It's just, you know, some people have bigger safety nets. They can take bigger risks where other people have to, they don't have that luxury. They can't, they can't screw it up. And yeah. So this Thanks, is, this is, yeah. this is going to be a, a hot take. This is going to be a hot it. take. Um, because like my partner, right. Uh, born in the U S and the family went back to India. Right. I think when they were, he was one. So he grew up in India, but it's like a U.S. citizen, but came over here, right? And something that we were, and my mom's Japanese, so something that we were talking about is that, like, for both our families who are, like, Asian, they had a certain sort of perspective about, like, how do you grow your career and how do you land a job? And for them, it was all about degrees. It was all about the credentials, right? Like, <laughs> like even, for example, in, in college, I had the option of going to Berkeley or San Diego. I decided I want to go to San Diego because literally student satisfaction was higher and it was the beaches and I didn't want to be near my family um, in San Francisco. So, um, right. And that was a really, really like this. That was a decision. Right. Um, same with my partner, like depending on what school he was going to, that was also a decision. Um, and so for like our families, and I don't know, and this might be true. I've, I've talked to some of the international students, right, from the science stream job, and I think some of them felt this pressure where their families were kind of pushing towards the degree and the credentialization. And that kind of gets you the interview, but it really does not seal the interview. It doesn't seal the interview. And it de you don't definitely, you definitely don't stand out. And I think that's something that like, is something that, for example, in if you're an international student coming to the US, that might be something that is a little bit of perspective, perspective shift, because I think... It's like, I think ultimately, like, you know, HR will see like the, the degrees, right? They'll look at your resume, they'll be like, okay, this person came from like, had a master's in Stanford. Great. Um, but ultimately, like your interviewer, they need to remember you and they need to think like, okay, how do we put this candidate in terms of the value that they can provide? And a lot of times that's demonstrated through more like formal experience, like through a prior employer, whether it's paid or unpaid or through like hands-on like personal projects. And and that's a, like that's something we talk about a lot, which is that like even as we go through our own careers, like our families who are from another different generation and who are from a different culture, um, 
they have a very, very certain expectation. And we had to like really adjust and align to be more, be more dynamic. And especially in, in like the Bay Area market where like everyone is from Harvard, everyone's from Berkeley, everyone's from Stanford. I mean, everyone <laughs> looks the same. So, you know, masters on B, whatever, right? Uh, let's hear from uh, Riva and then go to Ken and then um, we'll go to Eric's question after that. I got a bunch of questions coming in from LinkedIn. Guys, uh, hang around. Um, we got Dar- Diarrhea, uh, Akash, Kevin. Um, we'll get to your questions as well. Uh, let's hear from Riva, then Ken, then we'll go to Eric's questions and then all you guys on LinkedIn. Take care of you. Uh, so one point I wanted to add here is when I was when I moved to Australia and I was looking for a job here, one one question recruiters frequently asked was, do you have a local experience? I had freaking 10 years of experience, but they still wanted local experience. I don't know whether it was a way to say, okay, we are not taking you or whether to say, okay, we'll look around. But with international students, I saw that was an advantage they had because even like at the universities here, the way what they work is you do a course and you can exchange a piece of your course with an internship with a company. And many of these professors, they have tie-ups with some startups or some other place. So that gives them a quick, easy way to actually get some internship and get a little bit of that actual real world experience that I was struggling to find a lot. That was a good, that was one benefit that I did see. There are some challenges, definitely. There are and a lot more pressures, but all these things like this networking, working with professionals, working in some startups, it gives them a little bit of edge. And if they use them well enough, it gets them easily enough into the right spots at the right time. <laughs> so networking was definitely a big challenge I had when I was new to the market and the other students were also new to the market, but they had this little edge over that. Riva, thank you so much for that insight. Ken, let's go to you. Uh, you know, I think it's it's very interesting for international students, um, continuing off what uh, uh, Riva was saying and Makiko, is that um, there's a cultural difference, right, within organizations. Like some cultures, I forget what the 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 analogy is, but some some cultures mix significantly more um, like proximity or closeness or friendship with the way that they do business, right? I think uh, Japan is a very like closely knit. You you go out to drinks with your peers and your boss. There's a lot of hierarchy. Uh, there's there's fundamental differences in how business is done in the U.S. versus quite a lot of Asian countries or even South American countries. And understanding and adapting to the cultural norms. Although, you know, it's, it's you know, I, I actually think it's kind of bad that we're like, hey, you, you come in and you have to conform to some of these things. It can absolutely help you land a job if you understand the dynamics of how, how work is in the US. There's this whole field of organizational behavior and culturally uh, across countries, but across individual organizations, there's huge different elements of that as well. And I think that that's something that's almost completely overlooked by candidates who are US-based. Um, because it might be more intuitive, it might come more naturally if they're trying to work in the US. But coming from countries outside of the US, there's a huge learning curve associated with that. I mean, like in the US, it's pretty common to challenge your boss and ask questions, especially as a data scientist. In other countries, it can be absolutely mortifying to, to disagree with your boss because of just the way that that work is done in that country. So you know, do your homework on that too. I, I would imagine there's a lot of good uh, literature around that. Um, but that is a huge difference that I see, uh, especially when talking to international students, 
that that is not even on the radar? Is it, do you think that, hey, this is how we've done it. This is how I've seen my family do it. Um, you know, I, both my parents are doctors. I've had, <laughs> I've had to learn all of this myself related to the, to the main domain. Uh, but that's another lever you can pull to make yourself more desirable or to, to open up more opportunities. That's an interesting, interesting point. Um, Charles Duhigg talked about that in his book, Smarter, Faster, Better. He's uh, talking about uh, two different scenarios and plane crashes. And one of them happened uh, in this this culture where you had to kind of uh, be really deferential to like, you know, the person in charge. And uh, he's talking about how things went wrong in that versus another culture where you can openly go toe to toe with, with your uh, superior. It's the Korean uh, Airlines. Uh, the one, yes, yes, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, awesome. So anybody else have anything to say on this point? There's a bunch of questions coming in from LinkedIn. Um, so we'll go to Eric's questions first. And then uh, I got this this really interesting question from from Daria is uh, why are more and more data analytics jobs looking like data engineering ones? We'll get to that one. Daria, stay put. Um, but Eric, let's go to your question. Yeah. So my question is kind of a <clears throat> kind of a general question about collaboration. So I spent couple of hours this afternoon uh, troubleshooting some data stuff, trying to figure out what was going on. And we got most of the way to the bottom of the problem, but we don't know what's causing it. But it was so helpful to be collaborating um, with just because if I had been trying to think think through it on my own, uh, it probably would have taken me you know twice as long. So I was just wanting to know how you in your work manage like do you do you do working sessions do you only collaborate when it happens on accident when it ends up being a 30 minute meeting that turns into a two hour meeting or do you have some sort of structured way because i would love to incorporate more structured collaboration both for helping me get stuff done faster um, or you know and, and but also to learn and also build good relationships with people who are smart and that i respect Let's go to Tom Ives for this one. I haven't heard from Tom Ives on this show in a very, very long time. Man, it's good to have you here. I mean, take a look around at this, at who's here. This is pretty much half of Data Science Go Virtual uh, going on. We got the opening keynote speaker tomorrow, Tom Ives. We got Kenji hosting a, uh, a panel on podcasters that is conspicuously missing one podcaster. Uh, Joe Reese is going to be there as well. Ben Taylor. Uh, who else am I missing, man? So many, so many people. But uh, Tom, let's let's hear from you. So Eric, just so I answer carefully, because I wasn't anticipating being called on, could you briefly summarize what you just asked? How do I build in collaboration so that I can be awesome? Oh gosh, I guess um, I guess I do this a lot. Um, it's a uh, it's what we do full time in our in my group, integrated machine learning and AI. Uh, we have a spirit of. Um, hey, do you want to learn this? Okay, we just started a new channel in our Slack work group. Um, can we join a Kaggle competition so we can learn this together? Hey, let's start with not a money-making competition, but let's build our initial tool set with an ongoing competition so we can measure the quality of our tools that way. And uh, there's groups popping up now for FinTech and other things. And it's really exciting to see. Um, but I think, Eric, you're so dynamic and so well-respected in the community. I think either start your own community or join one that's like that. And there's some really good ones out there, too. Um, I will look them up and send them your way. And then uh, maybe Harper can uh, read them out loud on next week's show. I don't want to mispronounce any of them, but there's some really good collaboration groups out there for just that sort of thing. 
And uh, with regard to what everyone's been saying, which is excellent, the sad thing is you're all speaking truth, but as you go from one job or look at one company to another, everything you say could be completely different from one interview team to the next, what they're looking for, why they passed you up, all sorts of things. Um, and the wisest thing I learned was from Lewis Owen, who's a really good data scientist that I've spoken with many times out of Indonesia. And he said this very wise thing. He's a young man too, but super wise statement. It's not the best data scientists that get the great opportunities. It's the most visible ones. And I thought that was very insightful. However, as you keep working to be visible, it's funny, Eric, you're collaborating a lot. You're working with people a lot. You're helping a lot of people. That tends to cause you to grow pretty rapidly. So I think you're on the right track. But um, knowing someone of your dynamic skills might be great to see you start a little collaboration community on a certain learning exercise. I can tell you when I decided I needed to learn Transformers, I announced it on LinkedIn. I started a learning guild chat group. We transferred it over as a channel on my Slack work group, not mine, integrated. And lo and behold, Dennis Rothman joined our group. And that was before he'd released the book. And we were helping each other learn them as best we could. Then his book came out and I made a little video about it. You might've seen it, Ben. But Ben's was good, good, good video. That's a good video. Ben's was really good. He kept putting it down. It was, it was super. But if, if you know, um, Dennis's book was a godsend to the community, but actually we were really starting to get traction on things even before we got Dennis's book in our hands because we were all helping each other. And uh, there's a friend, he's kind of fallen away. I haven't heard from him much, but um, uh, Marchin Beards. And uh, he said just a statement or two in our group, it was a learning guild for Transformers, just really set me on the right direction, what to study, how to think about Transformers. It was super helpful. I hope that helped, Eric. Um, thank you very much. Uh, let's hear from uh, from Mark, and then we'll go to Makiko. And um, uh, just real quick, Mark did say serendipity, serendipity has guided his life. If you guys want to learn about serendipity, tune into the episode I did with Dr. Christian Bush, who wrote the book, The Serendipity Mindset, The Arts and Science of Creating Your Own Luck. So Eric, if you missed that episode, go listen to that one as well. I think this, this might provide some insight for you. Uh, but Mark, go for it. And then after Mark, we'll go to Makiko. And if anybody else would like to would like to you know contribute to the discussion just raise your hand or type it into the chat um don't wait on me to call you just just everybody's welcome i want to hear from everyone uh so go for mark yeah just real quick clarification eric do you do you mean just in general or do like at your specific company or both um so the i i'm i think a lot about the collaboration like at my specific company because because I know like a lot of really smart data people, but they're working, you know, they support different verticals or, or maybe they're in the same vertical, but they work in sales, whereas I work with marketing. And so I, I don't want to like take, I don't have somebody who sits next to me who does something very similar, just kind of indirectly related. And I want to yeah, grow. And definitely. So, <clears throat> so my, my, my advice may seem a little counterproductive and Q and mine is rooted in me being a startup and having access to a lot of people because it's so flat. Um, but one of the first things I did when I first joined, when I joined any job is I tried to talk to as many people who are outside my team, um, to start building rapport and connections. And specifically, um, why this is important is that like many times, like the business stakeholders or the non-technical individuals, 
or people who are outside my team are the ones generating data or generating the logic <laughs> that informs my data. And so having that key in with them from early on is extremely helpful. And then I try once a week to meet with someone outside my team to, to one, build that rapport, but also build that reach. And so now when I have an issue, you know, I can quickly just reach out and be like, hey, so-and-so, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this aspect. I think that touches your vertical or touches your domain. Like, what are your thoughts? Or do you know someone you can introduce me to real quick that I can like have that connection? And that just has opened up so many doors and like released a lot of bottlenecks for me simply because I can just navigate across the org really quick. And the thing is though, I set up those connections before I even had an issue. Um, That's awesome. And more and more importantly is that because I'm able to have those connections to other people, they come to me all the time and bring me different ideas. Like, hey, you're the data person. Like I'm having this issue. And so now I get a catalog of all these different ideas to see trends across the org that I wouldn't get from just being in the data science team. And so that's how I kind of do my collaboration is like being the kind of connector within the org in, the, in, in regards to data. And so, you know, I don't need to be the one collaborating. I just need to be able to one that's able to connect collaboration. And somehow that ends up making magic for, for me. So like the serendipity kind of component. Mark, thank you so cool. much. Thank you. Uh, Mikiko, let's, let's hear from you. And uh, after Mikiko, let's, let's hear from uh, Ben. Ben got, ha, has some great uh, comments here in the chat, so love to love to hear from that. Uh, Mikiko, then Ben, and if anybody else wants to chime in here, please, by all means. Yeah, so I mean, the so when I was hired for MailChimp, they were like, yeah, you, you kind of have to be collaborative because it's, it's not going to work out. Um, and I could kind of see why. But uh, so the way so one thing I to think about, I guess, is that collaboration should be a little bit natural. Like you shouldn't be randomly bringing or pulling people in to meetings um, or sort of inserting yourself into meetings necessarily randomly. Um, but there should kind of be a purpose, not in the sense of like, I want to get something out of you, but in a, you know, here are some questions or some thoughts like I would like to have about that part of the organization. So the first, yeah, the first two months, um, I basically set up meetings with a bunch of different people. And then kind of in the context of like, hey, I'm still like a newbie and I'm kind of learning. Can I have like a standing like meeting, you know, every two weeks or something? That's just like 30 minutes. Um, I, like, you know, so you can schedule it whenever you want. Um, so that's one way to do it. And that's like a very sort of formally structured way. Um, the second way is through uh, actually like PRs and code reviews. So like tagging people on like the engineering teams next to me. Um, that are sort of like relevant to that is like a really great way to open yourself up to feedback um, because people who have opinions, they will give you their opinion regardless of whether or not you want it. But in my case, I always want it because I'm learning. So that's a uh, second way. Third way is, um, so at least like, at least like with, um, with my team, we sit in between like a couple different orgs. And so a lot of them will have like all hands or different meetings or round tables or things like that. So I will ask if I can be included. Sometimes that is a little bit of a mystery of overhead, but I kind of feel like at least when you're first like starting in a new gig, right? And for some companies, first starting can be like one month or first starting could be like the first year of working there, depending on the complexity of the organization. Um, it really helps to get information for all these different areas because by just kind of engaging with people and like saying like, hey, like I didn't understand this. Could you explain this to me more? Um, or pinging them and just going like, hey, I really love this point that you brought up. Um, people really respond really positively to that. That's something that like I, I do think is kind of interesting. People seem to love or hate, you know, like you, you can have too many meetings and you can be in too many conversations. So it can be a little bit stressful. On the other hand, it's a really great way to get a lot of information. And at the end of the day, like for some companies, you do have to be visible to get promoted. And what that means is like, you can't just be like the hardest working person, the person who's producing the most tickets, 
whatever. Right. Um, but you have to really be sort of like people have to know your name and they have to kind of know like what you're associated with and having those both informal and formal conversations like really, really helps. Um, even if it's like posting memes and like Slack channels. So I know it's not professional, but you know what, who said my brand was professional. So, yeah. I remember you recommended this book to me, um, when I started my job here at price, it was like the first 90 days uh, book. Um, is it, do you think it's ever too late to kind of implement the lessons from that book, regardless of how long you are in your career? Because I felt like that book helped me uh, get that collaboration type of mindset and really help help me kind of set expectations. I, I don't know how to say it any yeah. better than that, but. Yeah, I do think, um, I do think something that can kind of make collaboration a little bit sort of tricky sometimes is that it, collaboration is really organic and to some degree, it's very like honest. I guess when you're working with someone on a project, like if you are weak in your skills, it's going to show up. Um, or if someone is more senior and experienced in skills, it's going to show up. Like I <laughs> recently did a pull request for a query and <laughs> lots and lots of feedback from all different areas. Um, but I think actually, and some people, they will get very defensive about that, especially if they become a little bit more senior. Um but I think actually when you are not defensive and when you're like, hey, guys, like, really, thanks a lot for the feedback. And also if you push back, like, in a very respectful way at times, like, people dig that at the end of the day. Like, at the end of the day, we, we all, like, you know, we all got 40 hours or whatever hours we got put in a job. Um, none of us want to work with a-holes. So, you know, if you if you, if you... If you exemplify the personality traits that you would want to work with, then kind of like the law of attraction stuff, right? Like you will get those kind of people working with you. Um, but I do think that like collaboration is sometimes very risky. It, it, it's not risky. It's very a vulnerable position. It's like the animal instinct. You got to really put yourself out there. And a lot of people are not comfortable with that. But at the same time, still be respectful and like find ways to provide value. That's not just kind of shoehorning your way in there. But even if it's, for example, like I'll, I'll help rewrite that documentation for you because everyone hates documentation. No one, no one likes doing documentation or I'll help organize the Jira dashboard or whatever. Right. It's like, just provide value like here and there. So. Eco, thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah. A lot of good advice there for you, uh, Eric, and a lot of good tips in the chat. And if you listening want to get good tips from the chat, then you have to actually join the zoom room. So Come and join us. Uh, link is is in the description, wherever it is that you're watching. Uh, so the next question, guys, coming from uh, Daria: uh, Why are more and more data analytics job postings looking like data engineering ones? Uh, then he added some more context here. Um, after giving the online assessment and first round interviews, companies inform me that they work eighty percent of the time on data pipelines with the job description didn't mention the thing about it. Okay, cool. Let's go to um sort of then uh, Joe Reese for this one. Sorry, who was going first? Joe, you the question oh, is okay. yeah, why are more and more uh, data analytics jobs? Uh, I, I think it's just because uh, depending on the size of the company or the maturity, I would say that's what's needed. I, I think it's unfortunate that they're being mislabeled as uh something besides data engineering. Uh, that's kind of lame actually. It's pick bait and switch. I'm sure Ben has some thoughts on this. Um so yeah, maybe. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I call myself a recovering data scientist for a reason, right? I mean, that's a moniker that I've used for a long time. And I think it's just because it reflects reality. A lot of data science, data uh, analytics can't be done until you have built the foundation. It's as simple as that. Otherwise, you're, well, you'll be building a foundation at some point um, or somebody else will for you because you'll leave. 
uh, this often happens as well. And so I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's probably just uh, whoever wrote the job post probably didn't know what they were looking for. So, I mean, I've seen this happen a lot though, right? And we get called in a lot for this very reason by analysts because they're hired and they say, well, geez, like, I don't know how to build data pipelines. I'm like, wait, like, why would you know how to da- build data pipelines? It's not what you were ever trained to do. And I don't think you should do that. So, um, so yeah, I, I would say that's also why data engineers are becoming more popular uh, now. So that's an official um, job role. But yeah, I think in this specific particular case, I feel sorry for this person. They had to waste their time on this interview because it shouldn't have happened in the first place. So. Joe, just to top up on that, could it be that I'm just thinking like when I started looking for it, some of the data analyst roles had these SSIS packages to be built and things like that. Now, if you translate it, it sounds like those are the things that data engineer has to do. Could it be a relation there? Possibly. Yeah. I mean, SSIS is a, to me a different thing almost. So, I mean, it, it's it's its own skill set. I mean, that's just a huge domain, really. And SSIS is like challenging. So, right. expecting somebody to be good at everything, I think it's like, it's just a horrible no no, but it happens all the time. And Vince uh, LinkedIn posts about this, I think, are, are perfect for this because they just, people just make really crappy job posts um, all the time. And like SIS has no place in, I could think in a data analyst or data science uh, job posting. Yeah, so initially I saw some data analyst roles with that. So I was like, why is SIS a data analyst? But then- Yeah, unless they're trying to haze you and like tell you not to apply, which I'm like, that's a good way to do it. <laughs> so I just think people don't know what they're looking for. I definitely hear from Vin on this, but before we get there, like what the hell does SSIS stand for? SQL Server Integration Service. Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's what you use if you're uh, making ETL pipelines in Microsoft. Nerd. It's basically the glue that holds everything together too. It's like that you got um, Excel that holds the world together, and you have SSIS. It, yeah, they have like a couple SSA analytics service, IS integration service. Those are things where I guess traditionally before the data engineer term came, the data analysts were kind of doing some of them. Sometimes, mostly like probably a BI developer, ETL developer would be handling all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it is gnarly stuff. I've tried refactoring some of that code. Um, I usually crawl, like run away from that stuff now. No, thanks. It's nasty, but you know, more power to you if you're doing it. I mean, it's a great, great service, but I mean, it's a specialized skill. Analysts should not be doing that. Then my man, let's hear from you. Uh, why are more data analytics jobs looking or data analytics job postings looking like the engineering ones? I don't. Oh, so I'm glad you said Vin because I was going to say I have no passion in this question. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can't tell. Uh, I'm assuming you said Vin, so yeah, yeah, I said Vin. Yeah, um, uh, it's interesting that with the roles in flux right now, and I'm seeing this with a lot of different roles. The the biggest wow, Vin Taylor. That would be a that's like a movie star. That's a movie star name right there. But I'm looking at a lot of different roles. And as there's some consolidation that's going on, I see people trying to drag data engineering and analyst roles together. I see people trying to drag ML engineer and data engineer together. I've seen like data scientist, data engineer kind of slapped together too. It seems like there is this kind of sorting out that's going on because you need at some companies, maybe a half of what, wow, that's a horrible word right there. Please never, ever say later ever again. That's, that word's banned. So yeah, there's. it seems like there's just general confusion because there's so much that's being automated 
And there's so much that's expecting to be automated. And there's some misunderstanding there of like what actually got automated and what isn't really ready for prime time automation. And so some people are looking, some companies are looking at their data analysts and saying, why do we have you? Most of what you do is automated now. And we can do a lot of this self-service and auto analytics, auto ML. And so they're saying, okay, well, why don't we transition you into data engineers? Because you do some of the same stuff and you do kind of live in that front end of the life cycle and you do, you know, and so they're mashing up roles that way. ML engineer, ML ops, you know, data engineer gets slapped together. And it's it really, at this point, it's confusion. And it doesn't seem to be like the old confusion that we had two or three years ago, where it was just people that were legitimately off their meds asking for eight people in one job title. But now there seems like even data scientists are somewhat confused and data and analytics organization leaders are fairly confused about where, you know, where talent lies and where skill sets overlap and what a data analyst is anymore. I think seriously, I think there are just so many opinions out there on what every one of these roles should do that you're going to see just an increasing shakeout until Somebody like Facebook or Google, you know, and Microsoft all kind of get together and say, here's a blog post about what each one of the roles at our company is. And then you'll see some standardization and then you'll see it niche a little bit for industries because this is what's happened with every other role. We're never going to get standardization in technology because that's just that it doesn't work. You can't standardize data scientists or any of the other data science, machine learning, engineering, any of those roles. but at some point, big companies are going to say, this is how we do things at, and, you know, Microsoft already does this really well. They publish a whole lot of standards and they're really good actually at what they do. IBM's doing a lot of the same thing too, but you really need three or four big names to get together, find the, you know, find the common definitions of each one of these and then get on the conference circuit and start evangelizing it. And I think that's when it'll shake out, but we're probably two or three years away from that. Because like I said, there's just so much disagreement and the needs across one company to the next to the next are so different that trying to get standardization is just, it, it, you're going to see this in all sorts of roles. And seriously, me and, me and Ben right now are probably a little uncomfortable with these names. Uh, let's go to Canada and African. We will go to uh, Joe. Yeah, um, if, if you guys want to see the crazy names that are going on in the chat, <laughs> you actually have to come and join the Zoom room because... Uh, we're doing some epic mashups, that's for sure. <laughs> Ken, go for it. So, Van, I love what you said about the internal wiki or the internal blog post. I think I'm 100% going to steal that for some of my clients. I think that is super needed. Uh, I will say on this front, the fact that a lot more of these roles are looking more like data engineering. I actually believe this is a step in the right direction from a management perspective in these organizations. From working with a lot of companies, I see a lot of a lot of them jumping towards data science before they have the proper infrastructure for that. And to me, seeing that uh, they are hiring for these roles that are earlier in the pipeline or the focus is earlier in the pipeline, it means that they see the importance of building out good data infrastructure uh, and sorting that out first. Uh, it isn't to say that someone in this role, uh, after they've started to build good infrastructure, will not transition. Uh, the, the nature of that role into something more like a pure data analyst or, or uh, you know, 
eat up more of that life cycle as a data scientist. I actually think that that could be a good thing for that person's experience. If you've built the data pipeline and now you're starting to do analysis using that pipeline, you're going to be a lot more familiar with it. I will say, I think it's, you know, it's still bad that you're giving these people a a false representation of what they're going to be doing. That's not okay. But I think at a very high level, this suggests to me that companies are starting to understand the importance of the data engineering and the ability to build these things uh, to, to scale and, and for longevity. Um, and 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 that, that is a little bit of a positive. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree, actually. Um, yeah, it's, um, I, you know, it's interesting as I'm writing this book on data engineering and trying to actually define what it is. Um, it's actually not, there's no consistent definition, just like data science, probably, right? Um, there's not even a Wikipedia entry for uh, data engineering, for example. Dead serious. And uh, you type in, uh, what is data engineering, um, you know, in Google, and you come up with like 84, 90,000, it's like 90,000 unique. You're doing an exact search on it, right? On that phrase. And it's just, it goes to show that like, it's not consolidated. And I did, a, I did, I spent like a week looking at all the definitions. I'm like, I have no fucking idea. Like, sorry, LinkedIn. Um, like what, um, any of this means. And so we had to come up with our own, but uh, so I think that's, that might be part of the problem too, is even if you were trying to come up with a job posting for it, you wouldn't know what to look for. Right. And so it's like, well, like, I guess we'll just get an analyst. Like that seems fine. Has the word data in it. So they'll, they'll figure it out. So. Let's all partner on a, on a, what is data engineering video and we can get it ranking high on search. Yeah. We don't. Yeah. I mean, I have a note to work on the, uh, the Wikipedia entry at some point. Um, you know, I, I need to get a, um, a few things are vetted for technical reviewers, but I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to take a stab at that. Um, so it falls under information engineering, actually, mm. which I didn't even know that was a field, but it is. So it's actually a pretty big field anyway. But yeah, I agree. It's great that at least I think the notion of, of you know, the, the motivation behind doing this is cool. Nice haircut, Ben. Did you see that? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, did you literally just go cut your hair or did you... Uh, no, I, I was working. You had a hat on? Okay. okay. I had a hat on. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Shave <laughs> my head. I want to get the uh, Ben Taylor wig. Be cool. Um, but yeah, it, it's cool that I, I think, uh, Ken, you're, you're absolutely right, where it, it's it's awesome that at least I, I think that in spirit, this is starting to happen more. Because all the time, you would just see uh, analysts or data scientists getting hired and be like, I have no idea what to do right now. Um, you know, there's no data. So I'll just go on, a, I don't know, I'll go collaborate with people. That was a joke about the other one. Yeah. A question. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you very much, everybody. Next question is like somewhat related. It's coming from Akash on LinkedIn. Um, he wants to know what aspects of data analyst experience are considered relevant for a data scientist position? Um, so I'd love to hear from uh, Mark. Do, do you want to chime in on this one? Yeah, I, I can. Because uh, one of my first jobs before I was a data scientist, so I worked in operations. And I also had a second job as a data analyst re researcher um, to kind of build up those data skills. And I think the the transferable skill, I think like the big takeaway take after my first project was like, wow, explaining statistics to people is extremely hard. And so I spent the next kind of like year really refining. I did this analysis. How do I communicate this to my manager? How to communicate this to the non-stats researcher? Um, and I think that's like the one of the biggest skills that I take with me in my current role as a data scientist is just like, cool, I can do the statistics. I can pull these numbers, but how do I explain that? And then I think the second thing is how do you set up your data pool? 
Um, are you getting the right numbers? Are you able to like confirm your counts? Um, I imagine for a data analyst, they're probably using a lot of BI tools, which is a guess, but like Tableau, Looker. Um, so like a lot of the stuff may be like away from you, but if you're using SQL, for example, um, you know, that's an amazing skill that like, I was, I was putting in the chat that like the past six months of my job has really been a lot of data infrastructure. And I just been in big query with SQL day in and day out, uh, really trying to develop data marts for our data science team because we're building that infrastructure for like more advanced stuff. And so like being a data analyst, that stuff's so applicable. SQL, setting up your, your data polls and then explaining your statistics to uh, non-technical stakeholders, you can easily spin that into a data science job if that's where you want to go. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, Eric, I'd love to hear from you on this one. Um, are you still here? Where are you, Eric? Yes, you're here. Can you give me the, I was distracted on LinkedIn. Something yeah. about skills. <laughs> yeah, the question is actually uh, coming from Akash on LinkedIn. He's saying, uh, what aspects of data analyst experience are considered relevant for a data scientist position? All right. <clears throat> Super dependent on your job. Uh, but I can say for me, I posted about this kind of recently, like SQL, 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 SQL. If you're going to pick up something, pick up SQL. If you're going to pick up two things, pick up SQL and then pick it up again. By the way, I hear that Harpreet is doing SQL from the ground up at DSGO or something like that. So do that. Um, like crazy important. And I generally try not to miss an opportunity to say that I don't spend time doing deep learning because it's not interesting to me. And I wouldn't like I don't think we do anything with deep learning um, at my work at all. Um, there is there are other models and things, but we don't do deep learning. And so I knew that it wasn't something that I needed, which is why I'm not reading all of Harpreet's cool books. <laughs> uh, so yeah, important things like SQL super practical and just like taking good notes about like what different metrics are. Like I have been taking pages and pages of notes and today just like consolidating things about you know, how do we calculate this thing here and there? And, and, and there may be things that are company specific or they may not be, but just like learning how to think in terms of the metrics and what, what drives, what drives change and improvement. Yeah, man, that um, lean analytics book really helped me kind of think in like a metrics and business type of perspective. Have you read that book yet, Eric? I have not heard of it. Definitely, I've read it. Definitely. Though. Yeah. Pick it up. I think the authors, uh, the class might still be free. Uh, it's Alistair Kroll, who's been on the podcast, and Benjamin Yatskovitz, and they have uh, written an amazing book, Lean Analytics, and there's a free course that you know, corresponds to it on um, on Udemy. Uh, but yeah, SQL is, it's not, it's not hard either, man. SQL is pretty, pretty easy to, to look up. And something that, that you're talking about was, you know, it, this was almost going to be the question that I was going to open with this week, but I'm going to open with it next week instead. And it's, maybe you guys can think about it and then join in, but it's a uh, what type of data scientist are you not, right? Because there's some data scientists who don't, like for me, I don't want to do product analytics. Like that's not my thing. Uh, that's too much like about statistics for me. I hated that shit. Um, but yeah, great, great, um, great tips there. Uh, anybody else want to chime in on this? I'd um, love to hear from 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 anyone else. Uh, Ken, go for it. Yeah, so I apologize. I zoned out a little bit. I had a, a work Slack come in. So Mark, you yeah. might've already said this. Um, but something that, that I've noticed in that transition from analyst to data scientist that you can take along the way is framing questions and, and your analysis in a certain way. So the way I look at it is, for the most part, when you're attacking a data science problem, you're doing a significant amount of the, of the visualization so that you understand what question you should ask next. 
And the data science work when you're starting to model build is you're just taking that data analysis and, and pushing it one step further so that you can predict or uh, understand some the components of something a little bit better. So you're taking essentially that whole process, maybe it's a little bit more streamlined and there's less like pure insights coming out of it, but you're taking that whole process and just appending to it, or you're going on the other direction and you're doing a bit more uh, of, the, of the data cleaning, data manipulation to, to get to that. So you're taking essentially that whole chunk of the framing of the problem and just moving it along a little bit. And so I would make sure that your systems for understanding these things, taking uh, uh, defining your approach to these problems and asking the right questions, also eliciting feedback from stakeholders. Those are all things that are gonna be integral. They're less on the technical side, but they're definitely no less important. And I'd say they're almost, um, you know, they're almost uniformly important across uh, any new data science role that you'd go into from your analyst position. All great tips, man. That was really, really insightful from everyone. Um, if anybody else wants to speak on this, let me know. Uh, otherwise, we'll move on to um, there's two more questions coming in from LinkedIn. Um, they sound like questions we might have touched on before. Um, but I'll bring it up anyways. Uh, one is coming from Kevin and Kevin wants to know, uh, can we share any advice on technical interviews? He works in accounting and recently started interviewing for data roles. They ask technical questions about SQL functions, which I do not work with in my day-to-day. -day. Well, you can rectify that by sending go virtual and uh, doing SQL from the ground up or, you know, checking out Danny Ma's uh, a SQL challenge. Um, he's got, he has like two or three SQL challenges or something like that. Um, Makiko, go for it. You muted. Ah, it's the end of the day <laughs> and I'm on East coast hours from the West coast. Um, uh, so if the, okay. So like for SQL, for example, like so many resources in terms of testing, um, SQL zoo is really good. Um, and then what I've done is I've taken the SQL cookbook um, from O'Reilly or something similar. And uh, a lot of times you'll do like, they'll have a table of contents. And let's say, for example, you're just refreshing. Um, what I'll do is I'll treat the table of contents as kind of like a prompt um, and just see like, so for example, if the table, like if one section is like, how do you, okay. So it's like, how do you pivot a table? And I'm like, that's really stupid when people ask that because you just never pivot tables in SQL. So let's just be honest, you bring into a BI tool. You don't ever pivot, but hypothetically, um, you, you like that's how kind of like I would look at the table contents in the book um basically go do I know how to do this um try to just like if I was given a sample data set or whatever a sample table just try to see if I can write it out by hand um or you could use something like I mean everyone has hacker rank that's like the really big one hacker rank or something similar like code wars so that's another really really great way um if you just need a refresher if it's something like a data structure and algorithms technical interview that is like a whole nother beast that is a whole nother beast that you would have to be prepared for where that methodology frankly would not work um especially if you have not had prior exposure to data structures and algorithms but for sql queries and for the one-off python stuff uh hacker rank is really good and typically if it's like a more junior role um at least on like hacker rank they won't, they'll test you on like what would be considered Python 101. So making sure you use collections, um, making sure that you can do like, like string functions and all that, um, things like that. And there's this one website, uh, the real Python uh, site, and they specifically have like a preparing for um, like Python interviews resource that I thought was really good. So 
if it's like, if it's like the simple stuff like that, then that'll work. Um, if it's the destruction algorithms, you, you got to do something a little bit different. All right, let's move on to um, to another question here. Thank you very much, Biki. Appreciate that. Um, great advice there. So Akash, hopefully you took some notes. Hopefully you stuck around for it. Um, so, oh, so that wasn't Akash. That was Kevin. Uh, next question is coming from uh, from Matt Diamond. I think Matt, are you in here? I think Matt is in here, but he posted this question on LinkedIn. So I do see you, Matt. Um, do you want to ask your question or should I raise it? Oh, no. So, sorry about that, guys. It, yeah, someone's sure. going off the phone. Uh, so it's all great stuff, but is there anything that mid-career switchers should keep in mind when we have quantitative experience, but it's not classically data science related? I don't use SQL every day, but I work with alternative data. We run statistical analyses, but is there anything that I should keep in mind when showcasing abilities and projects to employers? be hugely helpful yeah so i mean me personally right like i've got an extremely quantitative background uh, but i never had data science quote-unquote data science experience before i broke into data science right like i studied a shit ton of stats and math in undergrad got a master's in math and stats took a bunch of actuarial exams and then worked as an actuary worked as a biostatistician kind of just really rigorous statistics type of work um and i knew how to like write sas code as or a SAS can be called coding. Um, but like I'd never written like code in Python or anything until like the last four years or whatever. But it it's just the way you think about problems, right? Like if you frame it as, you know what, like, yeah, I don't have, I don't know all the tech skills, whatever. Like I, I don't know shit about cloud. Like I personally have never touched a SQL database uh, until it was like three years ago. Like that was the last time I, like that was the first time I ever touched a SQL database. And I got good at it. Why? Because like my, education and my prior experience forced me to learn things quickly and just to think through problems and think logically um i mean even like you know as a, as a biostatistician like the design and analysis of experiments is highly relevant in in data science um but the classes i took back then were called statistical learning and it's all just linear regression just all that cart trees and all that stuff it's applicable in data science and i think if you have quantitative but not data science experience, you know how to think about things. You know how to think about the problems that we're coming up against. Um, you know, it, it just might be like for me, it was just the lack of software engineering or software anything type of experience. It's not that hard to get up to speed on. Um, Ken, let's hear from you and then let's hear from uh, Mark as well. Yeah. So, my Matt, uh, it's a really good question. My thought is, what type of role are you trying to go into? You know, are you looking to stay? I think you're in the finance domain. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I I don't think it's a large barrier at all if you're already in finance. You, you already have a CFA, which is a highly tech, like highly quantitative, um, like I guess technically standardized test. Um, yeah. And to me, if you're trying to make that transition within the same field the threshold that you need for the technical and quantitative skills are probably going to, it's probably going to be lower, right? The, yeah. the pure computer science, whatever it might be. If you're looking to jump away from that, I think it's going to be significantly more difficult to showcase those. Um, and, and the way I always view this is if I'm weak in an area, I try to find the best, not weak, but like if I don't have a, a, as clear evidence that I'm good at something is uh, to, to jump to the platform or the place where I can showcase that I am really strong at that. So if it's coding is an issue, I say, hey, like I'm gonna make my GitHub impeccable. That's the first place I personally look for look at when I'm evaluating new candidates for uh, their coding ability. And usually I'm looking at how they document the code. I mean, like as long as they're not 
like writing wildly inefficient code or, you know, they're doing things that, that are just like terrible form to me, if they can wow me with that, the, the, the lapses in their like quote unquote background associated with that, it it's, I wouldn't say completely immaterial, but it drastically. Yeah, uh, for, for sure. The, the, the next step that I'm, I'm looking at is to pivot to a data science role within the finance domain. Do I want to stay in that domain forever? Absolutely not. But it's going to be too difficult to switch functions and industries in one hop. So the calculus being, I'll get a classic data science role at BlackRock or a, a hedge fund, if, you're if, if it gets to that point. But ultimately, I want to pivot to what's called CDP or customer data platforms. Uh, it's a new, it's a relatively nascent industry in software that basically melds different digital touch points to figure out how likely people are to engage with the company. And, and so the company can maintain a competitive advantage, but there's not necessarily a linear path there. And I, I can imagine that time's not necessarily on my side. So the idea of, of getting to that ultimate destination as quickly and thoroughly as I can would, was, is what I'm going for. I, I personally think you're the the what you described is a very good approach. That's how I would personally go about it. Not saying that the way I would go about something is correct, um, but yeah. <laughs> um, but no, that I mean that that would be. It seems like you're you're doing a lot of the right things, asking a lot of the right questions on that front. Cool. Um, real quick, quick, yeah, go for it. Matt, um, just a thought. This, this really helps uh, people that Guyth and I get started. Guyth Zinkari, a really close friend of mine that I write with. He. He and I encourage people, um, Microsoft SQL Server is free and Postgres SQL is free. And you can practice, let's say uh, you decide you're going to do an ongoing Kaggle competition. Well, yes, they make the data readily available in some format, but go ahead and create the schema and put it in to a SQL database on your local machine. And then go ahead and load the data back by various means. Create your own set of tools for uh, using pandas loading with uh, SQL Alchemy and and these other things. And uh, once you've done that with a, a a competition or a project or two, now you've not just gathered the data, you've learned how to set it up and you can state that you do that regularly on your resume. I think it's a great way. I, I was like Harpreet. I was spoiled because I come from an engineering background. We often have clean data. It oftentimes was stored in uh, uh, proprietary file formats that were just, well, not, I just mean they, they were uh, stored in very easily accessible, organized file systems. And so we just didn't use SQL a lot. Then when I started using SQL, I found out, oh, it's not that big a deal, but to really learn it, learn to go both ways, set up the database yourselves, build the tables, and then extract the data and get a tool set that does it different ways. You'll be a master in no time. Also, when you see someone write a gigantic query and it makes you dizzy, please understand they most likely used a query designer. So you want to learn to use a good query designer as soon as possible for the big queries. Thank you so much. Um, let's hear from uh, let's hear from from Mark on this, and then after Mark, uh, Ben, Ben, you got a great comment here in the chat. Would love to. Uh, Unlock that from the chat. Mark, go for it. Definitely. Um, so I think the advice I received from, from my mentors, because I was coming from healthcare and I wanted to finally break into data science. I, I realized I didn't want to become a doctor anymore. So I like basically lost all my mentors and my like, career path is completely changing. Um, and he said, you have this domain expertise in healthcare. 
lean in on that because you obviously don't have the technical skills, not like that, but you don't have the technical skills compared to like, you know, other individuals who've been doing like the data science things, so like lean into your strength. That was the like the best advice because I, I just targeted healthcare, health tech companies um, because what I realized a lot of my job is less of the technical and more so making really great assumptions <laughs> um, and having a framework to test out those assumptions. And so having that domain expertise allows me to excel past other people who don't have that healthcare um, because I know the specific terminology or data types are like, for example, like in healthcare, they're ICD-9 versus ICD-10, right? Those are completely two different data structures. And like that can trip you up so much, just a use case. So I imagine your finance for the CFA, like you you know all the like nooks and crannies and like gotchas at, yeah, a, we, at a really deep level. We get good at asking uh, indirect questions and tolerating ambiguity day in and day out. It's it's the the lack of a, a SQL database and the the, the nice clean pandas uh, databases that we don't interact with. So we we have to operationally define a lot of variables that people that, that data scientists don't necessarily. It's it's a contingency that a lot of data scientists don't seem to have to face. And that's and my concern is that a hiring manager would would look at my background and say okay, great, you know how to define these things, but how can you wrangle a data set, run some statistical analyses on these so that you can get to the answers that we want you to get to and have the impact that we want you to have? Yeah. At least so, so that goes into my next point. So I've been, I've been on the other side for, for the past like four months now on the hiring side where I'm like interviewing people and like going through case studies. And I, I imagine there's going to be two barriers for you. Um, and the first barrier is going to be either the, the the phone screener, so like a recruiter, or just some individual who does not have technical expertise and they're going off a list. I feel like this individual is probably going to be the hardest person to, to handle. I've had this experience where I was basically denied by a recruiter because I haven't used R in the past six months. But seven months ago, I was heavy in R. Yeah. Um, and so like you need to get your pitch really well defined. How do I talk to a non-technical stakeholder? to check those boxes just to get past them. If you can figure out that communication point to get past that barrier, you're going to be set. The next barrier is they're either going to have a case study or a technical interview like live. I bomb live technical interviews. So I get those. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to experience this, but probably bomb it. Move forward. But when I get a case study, I'm like, oh, yes, that's that's off to the races. They're going to tell you like only spend three hours. If it's not timed, especially if you're learning, (laughs) I spent like 20 hours because I had the time and I wanted to learn. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and Word. I wanted that job. So, you know, it was a great learning opportunity. I think it was the one that was like, uh, I was interviewing for like Amazon and they had this crazy ML thing. Like, yeah, take four hours. I took like four days and I learned so much from that for my yeah. next interview, which took a lot shorter because I learned from that. So um, they're all not paying technical. Yes, very true. <laughs> and yeah. so like in that, like for that role, be very critical, like ask the hiring manager, the, the recruiter, like, what are they looking for? Are they looking for technical expertise, right? Where they need to write like production level code, then that might be a harder ask. If it's more of an analytical thing, they may like slide past the technical side because they're more interested in like your thought process and your data sense. And so one of the main mistakes I see when I'm doing like case study review is that like the right bad code 
And then they don't have their explanation for like their data thought process. So I'm trying to decipher it and I'm having the worst time ever trying to grade their case study and try to see if they're a good fit for, for the role. And so, you know, if, if your strength isn't the, the, the data stuff, yeah. Or like the technical stuff, like one, take your time, screw their time limit, you know, focus on your learning objectives, you know, if you have the time, right. And then the second thing is like lean in on describing and communicating your data sense on that because that might they might slide like oh man like this R code is really not it but we can totally train this because that data sense is something I can't train. Um, yeah, I, I would think that they'd be able to say, look, if this dude could do this with a fraction of the info that we have available, imagine what he could do if he had the actual info available. I mean, that's if if I would look at yeah. it. And I move those individuals forward when I do case review studies. So I'm like, oh, that, that they're renaming the R variable over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. That's just a one conversation, do something different that's solved. Yeah. Um, right. Compared to them knowing like, oh yeah, I'm going to impute these, uh, not impute these variables because it's not random, right? Um, things like that, where those are like gotchas. So, um, but I think like the biggest barrier for you is actually not going to be that. It's going to be that initial phone screen to the non-technical person describing mm-hmm. that value you can add. And that's that's okay. I mean, that's there's and it feels like that's a numbers game more than anything. Like we've been talking about for almost the entire happy hour. Yeah, and unless you do the unforgivable act of iterating with a for loop over every row in a pandas data frame, then there's men trash. Let's go to Makiko, then Ken, then Ben. Makiko, go for it. What was really funny was I was expecting Ken to get called first because he had his hand up first, so I wasn't prepared. Oh. <laughs> It's, it's, it's just showing um, up uh, on my screen, like yeah, it's yeah, it's really random, right? Um, yeah. So my experience as someone who typically, I would say, I was not competitive, frankly, on the technical side for a lot of the roles that I ended up getting. Uh, so I might be saying I was um, not qualified for all the jobs that I got, but I'm not saying that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, especially to like, if you're in like a specialized industry. Um, this is like one of the drawbacks right of social media is that there is just like so much stress and hype over interviews like so much and so many people like especially on reddit are trying to get into like the fangs um or the fang type companies and what to me was really game changing was this idea that they actually try to minimize false positives as much as possible whereas smaller companies don't always have that luxury so what does that mean it means that uh companies like google apple facebook um they will hire anyone with a warm body is the way someone described it um with this idea that they will eventually trim off like 95 percent of candidates so they can afford to set up a lot of those like technical checkpoints um and the interviews for those companies can take just months uh like especially for amazon and i'm not going to name any more names actually um those interviews can just take so long um so but part of it too is how you frame your experience so when i had first when i was first transitioning to a machine learning engineering role from a data scientist role um all i was getting was technical interviews and the reason why was because the way i had structured my resume um the interview i was essentially kind of uh a tier two or tier three candidate. And I don't mean that by like there's official tiers of candidates, but I was not considered a top candidate because they looked at me and they said, you're a data scientist coming into an ML engineering role as opposed to an ML engineer coming into an ML engineering role. So they're like, we're going to put you through like extra paces. Um, so one, so making sure that you structure, how you structure your resume 
um, an application can really sort of change the odds on that. Um, because once I essentially got, uh, I got two professional ML, ML engineers to look at my resume and also got a lot of feedback, rewrote it um, to just make the experience more applicable. And it was experience working for a startup where I wasn't getting paid, right? So it doesn't even have to be like super formal experience. Um, that actually changed literally the composition of the interviews I was getting. So not only did I get three X the number of interviews, like I, I think the first month I was only getting like, man, I was not getting any callbacks. It was so depressing. I had a lot of like anxiety. I'm like, man, I'm, <laughs> I need to pay rent. Um, I feel you. But, but like month two and three after I'd gone that review, um, my the callbacks had tripled. And actually half my interviews were uh, holistic, like over the phone, um, not even formal whiteboarding. I mean, I when I got hit up by the things, they basically said like, yeah, th this is the interview structure and that's what you deal with. And some companies were trying to follow that and they were looking for a very specific kind of candidate. But there were other companies that were, they were like, this is our interview process. We want to know as much about you as a candidate like what your capabilities are as opposed to you know whatever um and also they ended up being like really good offers with a really good culture and all that so i would say like first off how you present yourself really will actually determine the kind of interviews you get um because if you're a more senior candidate or you look like a more senior they won't put you through the technicals necessarily if it's a smaller company um because they understand that it's really hard to architect software for example like and to describe it in a four-hour setting um so be careful about that but also to the kind of companies that you you go for um you don't have to find satisfaction in like a fang or you know in like a top that, like fi in the top finance company right like it doesn't have to yeah, be I'm, whatever i'm, I'm right? so far away from all that 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 is the furthest thing from my mind i just i want to engage in problems that i like to think about talk to people i like to talk yeah. to and ultimately solve problems the the fang and the the cachet and the comp like that i've been there yeah. done that it's it's not yeah, fun yeah. in my mind and, but, yeah and a, a lot of interviews too like uh, i mean if you get past like all the nonsense technical like you know we want to prove we're a unicorn startup whatever um, yeah. most of my interviews like even as an engineer they were literally just talking to people and like I, and I, I would i would do some case studies and, and whiteboard out right like you know that you, you do have to do some of that but a lot of it was talking and it's really surprising how if you have the specialized language, um, you know, they that will lend so much to your candidacy. Perfect. Well, this, this is great, guys. Thanks so much. Yeah. Let's go to uh, Ken and Ben and then Russell. You got some great comments here in the chat, too. So uh, let's get you after Ben. Um, and then we'll probably wrap it up right after that. Uh, Ken, go for it. Well, uh, so I am sort of going to pivot a question off of what we were just talking about. So Ben, if you have something very like relevant to what we were just talking about, I, I'd like to pose a question about the take-home interview process and how, um, you know, a lot of us in the chat have talked about, even I've done this, I take significantly more time than the four hours that they suggest that you take. And I want to know, I mean, to me, after I started hiring people, I said, wow, this might create some unrealistic standards of work. Uh, at the role. So if someone is saying that it takes them four hours and they have incredibly complete analysis, am I going to assume when they're on the job that that four hours of their time, they could do that much when in reality, it's four or five days of work? Uh, there's also some ethics of that around um, like, you know, being invasive of other people's time. I have a, a friend who uh, runs a, a data science interview website and he hates the take-home interview because it's like, hey, he, he everyone knows you're going to spend you know, more than four hours on it, like that's your time. They, they're not paying you for that. They, you know, it's, they, there's some weird ethics around that whole concept uh, that I'm interested to hear your perspective on. Because if someone realistically only spent four hours on one of those things and they said, this is a 
clear and, and I could evaluate that this is a clear, realistic snapshot of what they would do in four hours. I don't know how I would evaluate that. Would I evaluate that better? Or would I evaluate that worse? Or would I evaluate the, the same as someone who spent four full days on it? Literally, I've been going through a, a, like four interviews last week and a bunch of take-home assignments. Uh, so I'd love to hear people's take on this. I personally, I'll spend a little bit more time. Um, I, I think of it this way, that I spent four hours writing the code for the project because I'll look at a problem and I'll like stare it down and then I'll put it away for like a day or two and I'll just let you know my mind think about it, work on it, come up with a framework of how I want to solve it. Uh, but then when it comes time to actually like like actually typing shit out, then that's a little bit a little bit different. But uh I guess Ben, let's let's hear from you uh on either Ken's question or the the previous point. Um I'm whatever you I, wherever you want to go with that. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna uh, so Matt, Matt Diamond, I I don't know you personally. I haven't looked at your LinkedIn, I haven't looked at your resume, but I one of the things that I think is really good, I was mentioning in the chat is people have terrible terrible stereotypes. And they can be they're like the odds are stacked against you. You're coming in. So if I knew even some hints you've mentioned sound much more impressive than like the standard stereotype. But if I was thinking someone's coming into data science from a finance, or like more of a accounting background, stereotypes that could exist in a hiring manager would be they're terrible at programming. They only know classical statistics. The real world that we see in data science is non-classical. They're not going to have any exposure to NLP or some of these other things. And they'll, they'll be very junior there. And then you might even be even harsher and say they, they don't have a creative bone in their body. And hopefully those like well emotions like screw you dude like that's not none of that is true but the but the good thing is if you know what those points are and let's say i had that bias as a hiring manager you know like hey check out my passion project you could actually pull even harder on some of those biases and you're like hey you know check this out or like github example with ken and that's going to make my head spin where i'm like oh shit like yeah and so I think having those biases, it doesn't mean those weaknesses are real, but reaching out to some data science managers say, hey, based on my previous experience coming into this role, what are some top concerns you'd have? I'm not going to hold you accountable to those. Shoot me straight. What are they? And as you know, those biases, I think you can just have these like silver bullets where you, you know, you yeah. come into the resume in the, in the interview process. Um, I think sometimes people don't talk about it enough, but it, it sucks. There's just unconscious bias. It's, yeah. I mean, it's just, we're, we're, we're human beings. And it, like the, the way that I've addressed those is to lean harder into NLP. That's one of the, the projects I'm doing on the side around how to, how to correlate sentiment around earnings in, in publicly available transcripts towards stock price, things, things like that. So it, it, it's, I, I would imagine that the programming knowledge, that's absolutely fair. I, I didn't even know how to spell pandas three years ago, and now I, I work with it every day on the side. So I, I, I would think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if, if there's enough independent flexing of muscles just to show that I could do the stuff and, and disabuse people of whatever stereotypes come with finance people who look sound and, and act like me, it, the, the answer would almost be so obvious that the question wouldn't even need to be asked. Am, am I right in thinking that or am I way off in left no, no, field here? No, I think that's right. I the, the other thing to keep in mind too, even stepping out and doing these things that don't, they do feel outside the comfort zone of your typical person in finance, like the NLP example, if that bias is really strong, I might be ready to critique that. I might be ready to say, oh, but they're using this junior approach. They're using okay. this hello world approach, which is which is easy to fix because you could just say, hey, mm-hmm. like the, the thing I love when I'm looking at a blog or something, you're like, hey, I did it the easy way, did it the hard way. And honestly, it's not even more work. It's just pinging the community people here and you said, hey, I did it this way. I'm done. What's version two? And you'll find it's like a few more lines of code. The, the fact that you even are aware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
yeah, so that's it, it sucks that the bias is there, but they're even doing those projects that there's the temptation to try to say, well, that's junior work. And it's so easy to just pull the community and say, hey, I did the NLP project. I want version two. This is going to be kind of a core anchor. This is going to be mm-hmm. one of the pieces that's reviewed. And there's people on this call. They could add some tips and tricks and point in directions where the higher managers see this say, holy shit, like, who are you? How did you do this? How, how did you even know about these techniques? You're like, well... I go to data science, go, I go to these things. I talk to people because yeah. that's how we all know all this, right? Like none of us knew any of it. We had to talk yeah. to each other. We had to go read books and, and you have a huge advantage compared to most of us because we had no idea what the hell we were doing. And we <laughs> spent much longer trying to figure it out. So yeah, enough of the rant, but I, does that make sense? I'm not trying to. Yeah, no, this is. Being in the neg- no, negativity, I think. You yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's honesty. That, that's what I, I just want to look at this as, as soberly and, and circumspectly as I can. And if if there are contingencies to face, then I'll face them. But Ben and everybody, this is hugely helpful. Thank you so much. And I'm happy to be a resource. So much love for everyone on this group. Um, but anyway, I'll show up now because Ken had his. No, no, no. You're, no, you're good, man. Thank you. Yeah, Real quick, uh, Matt, there's somehow it, it gives extra oomph to your learning if you just made a super clean GitHub repo. Yeah. With, and the notebook is like a piece of art. You've got yeah. math equations in it that are latex, you know, and, and you you've, you show that you know how to format the markdown. And you've written yeah. really good code, too, of course. Yep. But you show that you're visualizing. You show you're going through the classic pipeline. You you know, it's really hard to argue that you don't know your stuff if you show not just one project, but several different types of projects on there for that. Tom, I want to hear from you on the, uh, like, thank you very much, Tom. Matt, hope you got a lot of gems there, man. Um, this is, no, this is great. Yeah. yeah thank you. It's recorded, uh, like it's immediately available right there back on LinkedIn. If you want to go run it back and it's on the podcast as well. So it's there for you. Uh, but Tom, going back to, um, <clears throat> Going back to Ken's question, I remember, <laughs> remember this was like back in uh, when was that Tom when I had you review a take home assignment for me? It was like February. It was like uh, January. January. Yeah, February it was in the year. winter, and I was yeah. feeling your pain. Yeah, it was yeah. a huge data set they gave you. That's right. Yeah, it was ten gigabyte data set they gave me and had me do shit with it, and uh, they told me to spend no more than four hours on it. And Tom was like, "How much time did you really spend?" And I was like, "Honestly, dude, probably like." 13 or 14 hours on it so far uh, which would have been a short time for me by the way looking yeah, at so, that data yeah what's yeah i mean because you like to you like to really slice dice get narrow and and um, explore but how would you respond to ken's question um uh, about like do you want to resummarize your question for us ken yeah sure I, I think like any of us would spend a significant amount of time on these take-homes more than they recommend um, but because we do that, do we set unreasonable expectations for the amount of work that companies expect in four hours on any given day? Um, also, from the company's perspective, you know, that's a lot of ask. Uh, even though they're only saying four hours, they know these people are going to work more. You're not being compensated for that. I mean, yes, you have the potential to land a position, but like from a, a pure ethics perspective in hiring, are there things that could be done that would eva- help them to evaluate the skills in a similar way uh, without that huge time investment uh, on the interview candidates part? So I think there's two two sides of that is like, I, I think at a high level is, is this a good thing that we're working so much harder than, than what's expected for that window? And is this a good practice from the companies to make you, uh, to create this scenario for you? I like the way someone earlier put it. If you know you're getting learning value from it, <clears throat> shoot if uh 
I, I try to encourage people in our integrated family, don't worry. You know, there's already a low chance you're going to get the position. So don't stress about it. The most important thing you could do is go in the interview relaxed. And it, so what if you spent 24 hours on the data set they asked you to spend for? Did you learn a lot? Great. Go in there and just see what you can do. But you're right, Ken. As you get better at the pipeline process and explaining things to non-data scientists, you just get faster at those things because you've got existing notebooks or scripts that you can draw from. I hope everyone's building their own tools and saving them carefully in a cloud drive or on, on GitHub or get something. Those things will save you an immense amount of time, but also keep developing your concepts and your philosophies because as you get those more and more sound, you can blaze through those data sets. But shoot, I could still spend a long time. I remember I got a data set for an assessment. I probably spent eight hours on it. I thought I basically just told them, wow. This prediction was a little better than average. I guess it's better than nothing. This was really crappy data. It had to do with late arrival of aircraft and stuff. It got me an interview. And then I bombed some other questions at the interview because <laughs> I got nervous, like I tell everyone else not to do. Um, thank you. Uh, Mark, I did notice you had your hand up, but I don't see it up anymore. I don't know if it just climbed out or uh, do you want oh, to it was just that? it was just going to quickly note, like what I found too is like once you figure out how to better communicate kind of like your skills and get the uh, technical interview, you'll get like three or four, hopefully, because you just figured out that step. And I learned the hard way to pace yourself. <laughs> and I had an instance where I had four technical kind of uh, interview case studies at the same time. And I was just in a position where I'm like, all right, which one I'm going to bomb because I don't have time to do all this. And so being more strategic about like after you figure out how to get past that level of like how to space out that or like negotiate with people saying like, all right, I'll do this. But like I won't start until like that next week. And that was a hard lesson I learned. I was very tired and caffeinated that time. Really pain. Go through the same thing. Mikiko, go for it. It's funny. I had... At a week where I was I was doing four interviews too, and it was it was rough. Oh my god! But I was also I needed pay rent, so you know, rough is as rough do. Um, but so hiring in data science, in some ways, it feels like it's a very late conversation compared to hiring in engineering because I feel like some of the same questions that we're talking about in hiring data science, they've been talking about in engineering for like a really long time. And from the from like my personal as a perspective as a candidate, like I preferred take home tests over the technical assessments, um, but it did mean I had to basically pick and choose. Um, but I felt like at least on the take homes, I had a little bit more little control, a little bit more control over my destiny, right? Um, from the hiring manager perspective and the company perspective, like if you're not Google and all those guys, like, let's say you're mid-sized to a startup. I don't know if, I don't know what good options are because you're going to, you're going to leave out some, you're going to, there is always going to be a group that will not be down with whichever technical, whichever interview strategy that you choose. Right. Like basically companies are doing, companies are filtering at some point. It's kind of like, where are they putting that upfront cost of filtering? Are they putting it on like, for example, are they putting on their employees to basically hire to like interview a bunch of candidates or are they putting it on the candidates through the case study interviews? I know for me, I like I appreciate the case studies more, but I appreciate even more so now just doing whiteboarding exercises and 
like software architecture design, um, more so than data structures and algorithms. But part of it is also because I never studied computer science. So for me, that's literally my weak point. Whereas I feel like other people, for them, they're like, yeah, we'll totally like do the technicals because they're like, screw that. We're just going to like spend an hour doing it. So I don't know if, I don't know if there's like an optimal strategy that's not dependent just like on the size of the company and like, where do you, where do you put the effort in? It's like filtering people, I guess. Oh, excellent points. Thank you very much, Mikiko. Uh, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up with that. Man, great discussions today. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, Hopefully you guys get a chance to tune into the podcast that was released just yesterday. Uh, Dr. John Sviokla, Self-Made Billionaire Effect. Love that book. I think you love the conversation. Also the episode uh, I did with Data Talk. Tune into that. And don't forget DSCO Virtual this week. Um, I think you saw half the participants uh, that are speaking there this weekend. We're here. Uh, we should just call DSCO Virtual just the Harpreet and Friends Conference. I think that would be a better name for it. Guys, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come join us today. Appreciate you joining in, uh, everybody, wherever you're watching from. Remember, my friends, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>